Over the last few sermon series that I've done uh, here at Grace, I began to do something that uh, I probably will continue to do into the future, and that is, and maybe I've done it before uh, in some ways, but uh, the very last sermon that I do is more like a, a summary of the main points of the book or passage that we are studying. You may remember when we studied John 17, the very last sermon that I did was entitled Until All Are Safely Home. And that, I think, rightly uh, highlighted what I believe is the theme of that chapter in John, the assurance of our salvation. And in looking over that prayer, as we did in that last sermon, I wanted us to keep this question in mind, or these questions. Will there ever be a time when our Savior will not be praying for us? Will his faithful intercession for us ever end? As we looked at that uh, in sort of an overview of John 17, and I want us to look back and to see that that prayer that Jesus prays for us, even today, he is faithful to do so, and he will do so until the very end. And the very end is when he brings everyone whom, for whom he has died safely home. And so as we looked at that, we saw our faithful Savior, our sanctified Savior, our glorious Savior, who will say on that great day, welcome home, one so dearly loved. You are safe now because I have prayed you all the way home. That is what John 17 teaches us. There will be a day, of course, when all the elect are gathered in, where Jesus will no longer be praying for us because there is no longer any need because we will be safely home. When we study the book of Isaiah, I Summarized, you may remember this. I summarized the whole of our study, which was over three years, with just a simple phrase It's okay. It's okay. And I did that by highlighting the seven lessons that I thought we learned together in our study of Isaiah the doctrine of creation, as seen in Isaiah, the wrath of God against sin, the folly of idolatry, God's jealousy for his own glory, the centrality of Christ in everything. The Great Exchange, Beauty for Ashes, and Zion and God's People. For me, Isaiah has now become an it's okay sort of book, meaning that everything we learn tells us no matter what happens in our day and in our time, it's always okay because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I say out loud to myself often that God loves me, and I know he loves me. He is able to save me. He has saved me. And he will complete the work that he has begun in me. He has done all of that in Jesus for me and for you if you are a follower of his. And because of that, as Isaiah teaches us, it really is okay. Everything is really okay. Well, we've come to the end of our study of Jude, a very small book tucked away in the back of our Bibles right before the last book of the Bible the book of Revelation, and I want to end this morning by a summary of what I believe we've learned together in Jude. And to do that, we need to have it fresh in our minds, and so I will read all 25 verses. My intent earlier was to do this by memory. I have memorized almost all of it, but I don't think I can do it here before you because you're in the room, so I won't do it. But many of you have committed it to memory, and may God bless that if you have, and bring it often to your life and memory as you live under his goodness and kindness. Please stand as we hear the book of Jude. 
beginning in verse 1 through verse 25, this is the word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people, having crept in unnoticed, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yes, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you... You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Amen. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass, it withers, the flowers, they fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we are mindful that we need your blessing, your spirit, to take these words which we have read and make them more than simply words on a page, but make them come alive as you take them and press them into our hearts and minds, as you remind us of all that you have taught us over these many weeks. Bless your word to our hearing then and to our growth, we pray, with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jude, of course, is a timeless book. It has no expiration date. In fact, the Bible in its entirety is timeless. By that I mean, of course, that the message of God's word to his people in every age and to those in this world is as true and applicable today as when the Lord first revealed himself through Holy Scripture by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and caused it to be written down in the form we have it today, that God himself has preserved. It is timeless. One of the common attacks, of course, against Christianity in our day and every age, one of the ways we are called to contend for the faith, in fact, is the belief by many that the Bible is an outdated book written long ago that can't possibly possibly relate to our modern times. We're far more advanced now, the argument goes. We're more intelligent. We understand more. We have science, after all. Well, that attack, of course, has been common in every age, whether it's a scientific age or not. Those of us that are working through financial matters, for instance, on Friday nights are learning that his word is timeless with respect to the principles. He has revealed to us in his word about money, and how we're, to be call, we're called to be good stewards of all that the Lord has given to us. It is as true today as it was ever since the Lord wrote it down. The same is true in areas of morality, in areas of understanding of the human heart, in the way we understand the world around us and the creation that God has made. It's true in how we understand suffering and pain it's true as well as how we understand who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. In everything the Bible speaks about, it is timeless, which is why we confess that the Bible alone, the Bible alone is our only rule of faith and practice. It is as true today as when it was first written. What we have learned in our study of Jude is for our lives today. We're not simply looking back to a people who lived far and long ago and sort of trying to experience through them what they experienced, but we are taking what Jude writes and applying it, and it's so applicable to the world in which we live today. And so in this sort of big picture way, as I mentioned, I want to do now when we end series like this, there are three main things. Remember, Jude loves threes. All throughout his book, he does, thing in, does things in three. And so for us this morning, as we've read through the whole thing, and as many of you I've heard have, in fact, memorized the entire book, praise God, may he use it again in your lives. 
that Jude loves these groups of three, and so we're going to end with these three points as we close out our study. The central verse, as you know, in the book of Jude is found in verse 3. It's the reason for this letter. It wasn't the original reason, but it was the reason as he wrote the letter after all. And that is that we might contend, that we might contend for the faith. The faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That which was delivered unto them is a reference to God's revelation, his word. So the faith is not our believing that we have faith, if you will. But the faith, as Jude describes it here, is what God has revealed. Those doctrines, those teachings, that truth, that body of truth, which God has delivered unto us in his word. It is his revelation. And Jude calls us to contend for it. And so the focus here is on faith. And the first point is this. Jude tells us it is indeed a faith in which we are called to rejoice a faith to rejoice in. Now, I begin this way for lots of reasons, mainly because that's the way Jude began. Remember, his original intent, if you look at the beginning of Jude, you can see it there. In verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he was telling them that what he wanted to do originally, as we've studied, is to write essentially a letter that would cause them and him together to rejoice in everything that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Well, we know that most of this letter is not that. But as we've studied, you've seen and I've seen with you that in the beginning of the book and in the end of the book, that is exactly what he does. He gives them reasons for which and in which they can rejoice in their common salvation. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 as we remember what the Lord taught us. He uses words like in verse 2 or verse 1, I should say, to those who are called, to those who are beloved in God the Father, and to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. He's reminding them that the salvation in which they live and enjoy is a result of God's calling, the God's choosing of a people. This, of course, is a reference we noted of God's effectual call, whereby the Holy Spirit, he calls us irresistibly to Jesus, changes our hearts, gives us a new affection, a new desire for Jesus that was not there before. That calling is what he's referring to. And he's calling these people to remember that God is the one that has done this. And this calling, this effectual calling, is the root and the fountain from which all of the blessings that are ours in Christ flow, our calling by the sovereign choice and pleasure of God. That's a way of saying rejoice in that, delight in that truth that God has called you. And all of those whom God has called are those whom he has foreknown, predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he's predestined, he's called effectually. Those whom he has called, Romans tells us, he's justified. And those whom he has justified, he has already glorified. So that's a cause for rejoicing, a faith to rejoice in. But he builds on that. He adds to it, if you will, beloved in God the Father. 
This is a reference to God's agape love. Having been loved, he says, by God the Father. This is what he wants these believers to know. And he reminds them how many times did we see this in his own words. Beloved, 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 not only of me, but beloved of God, of God the Father. They are beloved in God the Father. And isn't that exactly what we studied and learned in John 17? I in them, Jesus said, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. We are those, Jude says, who are loved by God as the Son is loved by the Father. What an amazing truth and what a cause for rejoicing. But there's more they are also, we are also kept or preserved for Jesus Christ, that we are secured in him, that the Father has chosen us, has given us his love, has wrapped us, if you will, with his love, and has preserved and kept us for Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself said, that all that the Father has given to me shall indeed come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is the Father who calls, who gives them with joy to the Son, and the Son who receives them, who suffers and dies for them, who raised to new life for them, and who will present them again to the Father. So that, as Paul says, he who began a good work in you will indeed complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He adds to this, of course, this wonderful blessing, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is a reason for rejoicing as well. God has multiplied his gifts. This is not simple addition. This is gospel math. The multiplication of all the gifts that are ours in Christ are ours in and through what God has done for us in him. Now, he doesn't just begin the book that way. You remember how he ends the book. After all of that middle section about judgment and these false teachers who have come in and who live these ungodly lives. Remember how he ends the book. Now to him, it's an inscription of praise. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You see there he's actually calling us to rejoice. He's calling us to give thanks. This inscription of praise serves as sort of like the the last part, the first and the last together on both sides, which tell us really that the whole book is originally uh, what Jude wanted to do. He's actually accomplished by putting these two bookends in this book. He's actually accomplishing the very purpose for which he wrote this letter. He's calling the people to rejoice in this faith once for all delivered unto the saints. How important is it that we today remember for this is a timeless book that we remember that this is our calling as well no matter what happens in our lives this is our calling to rejoice in this salvation this faith once for all delivered unto the saints you know as i mentioned this is the first sunday where the church of jesus christ is gathering since what the events of this past week and Uh, One writer uh, writing about those events says this, and it's a wonderful insight. He's quoting the Heidelberg Catechism as he reminds those who are in the midst of suffering. 
And he says this with regard to one of the questions, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty? This is the Apostles' Creed. This is the first confession we make, the first statement that we make in that creed. And the answer, according to the catechism, is this. I trust him so much that I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and that he will turn my, to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He so wisely and rightly applies that to what happened this past week at the church and school in Nashville, and he writes this, God is an almighty father. That's not just something, that's everything. For tenderness of expression, there is no explanation of the creed's first line, as sweet and comforting as that which comes from that catechism. All of this, he says, I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and that he will turn for my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Those words, he says, are to be comfort for God's people. Is that really true, he says? Can we really count on such a promise? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Hard to believe after six lives were shot down in an act of diabolical malevolence. That's why it's called the fight of faith. In times like this, we need the whole Bible with all the depth of Christ's sympathy and all the height of God's providential and loving care. We need to know that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. We need to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to know that the story doesn't end with Joseph in prison or Jonah in the whale or Jesus in the tomb. We need to know after every cruciform Monday that Sunday is coming. We need to know that there is hope, and that is a cause for rejoicing. And though it seems Jude is so overfilled with these concerns about these false teachers and their ungodly ways, he begins actually by telling us that this faith is worth rejoicing in. Secondly, this is a faith, he tells us, that has enemies. Jude spends the bulk of his letter writing about the enemies of the cross of Christ. I love that phrase, enemies of the cross of Christ. It comes from Paul's writing to the Philippians, but this is what Jude's talking about. Paul writes to the Philippian believers, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. That description of Paul of the enemies of the cross of Christ is exactly what Jude refers to here They are ungodly people, he says in verse 3 and 4, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and who deny our only master and Lord, 
Jesus Christ. You see, this is why they're enemies of the cross. What happens at the cross? According to Romans 6, it's at the cross that we die to sin. They're enemies of the cross because they refuse to die to their sin. They revel in their sin. They love their sin. They pervert and change the gospel of Jesus Christ into a lie, which allows them to live in the sensuality of this world. They deny the power of the cross, and they live instead in the ungodliness of this world. All throughout this, Jude gives examples. You see them if you follow with me along. They are those who did not believe. They are those who would not stay like the angels in their position of authority. They indulged in sexual immorality. They pursued unnatural desire. They defile the flesh. They blaspheme all that they do not understand. They feast without fear among God's people. They are shepherds who only feed themselves. They cast up the foam of their own shame. They are ungodly. They do deeds of ungodliness. They live in an ungodly way. They follow all of their natural sinful desires. They cause divisions. They are worldly people. And they are devoid of the Holy Spirit. That reads almost like a commentary of our own times. We're facing the same thing in our day, brothers and sisters. It's the same thing all around us, outside of the church of Jesus Christ, and yes, even within those who would identify themselves with Christ. There are those who are doing these very things. They are walking, as Paul says now, as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, refusing to die to their sin and all of their ungodly desires. I won't read it, but you know the passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he speaks of the last days in which we live today as even those to whom Paul is writing lived as well. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with all conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. The faith, once for all delivered unto the saints, has always and will always have enemies. Those enemies will come from within the church, from among God's people who, who, who claim to be God's people. They will be wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus said. They will creep in unnoticed in the church. And so this faith, because it has enemies, we are called to always be on our guard, to give ourselves to the things of God's word, to the sacred writings, as he later tells Timothy, and he reminds them that scripture itself and only scripture is that which is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And that every good work includes standing against the enemies of that faith that are all around us. 
Thirdly, it is a faith that Jude tells us we are to contend for, to contend for. This is his main point, of course. We can't ignore it in our day. We are called to contend as well, to earnestly contend. It means to agonize, to fight, to struggle. It's an active verb, not passive. It means to fight with everything you've got. It means an effort expended in a noble cause. As Matthew Poole says, by constancy in the faith, zeal for the truth, holiness of life, mutual exhortation, prayer, suffering for the gospel against those who would pervert the gospel of grace. It is the full engagement of the believer by the grace of God in demonstrating the power of God, which he wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Remember in our study, as we looked at what it means to contend, because he says it in verse 3, but it's not until we get to verse 20 through 23 that we learn what is it that he means? How do we actually contend? Look at those verses again. It is first by building ourselves up in this most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit with a dependence upon the Holy Spirit, by keeping ourselves in the love of God and by waiting and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Those are active ways as we've studied them that we are to contend for the faith. That has a respect to ourselves, how individually we are called and to encourage one another in this same way. But you'll remember in these verses, he also tells what's our responsibility to those with whom we are joined by that one spirit. Well, have mercy on those who doubt. Pursue them. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others who are in great danger, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Our mutual responsibility in contending is in view there. So contending is not this sort of passive sitting back and waiting for God to do what God's going to do. It is an active contending, fighting, struggling, and agonizing for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That's what we're called to do in this age, as Jude was called his believers or his followers to do in that age. We're going to sing a great hymn that we're going to end the service with this morning, Faith of Our Fathers. Frederick Faber was once a minister in the Church of England and when he wrote this hymn, he had probably already left the Anglican Church, the Church of England, in the mid-19th century and went to the Roman Catholic Church. That has caused some people not to sing this hymn at all, but Protestants have long used this hymn as a wonderful testimony about our need to contend for the faith. He wrote the original words, which were later edited by many Protestants and put in Protestant hymnals, as a way to remember the martyrs that were killed under Henry VIII when Henry VIII left the Roman Catholic Church. The refrain, the wonderful refrain, faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee until death, was added later as something that fit well into the music that we so often use when we sing that hymn. Faber himself expressed in his own writings a deep appreciation for 
the Protestant forerunners in hymnody, including the famous 18th century publications like the Olney Hymns by William Cooper and John Newton, as well as collections of the Wesleys because of their clarity and their passion. And they served for him as models as he wrote these hymns. The words we're going to sing will remind us of what it means to contend for the faith, faith of our fathers living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword, Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whene'er we hear God's glorious word. Our fathers, chained in prisons dark, were still in heart and conscience free, and blessed would be their children's fate if they, like them, should die for thee. Faith of our fathers, God's great power shall draw all nations unto thee, and though the truth that comes from God, his people shall indeed be free. Faith of our fathers, we will love both friend and foe in all our strife and preach thee too as love knows how by witness true and by a virtuous life. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee until death. That hymn will, for all of us as we sing it later in our service, will be our own testimony that we will continue and strive to contend for the faith, the substance of which God has given to us in his word, a faith that first must be believed by the grace of God and then contended earnestly for. We would be foolish to believe that this faith in our day is not under attack. Recent events, as we've seen in the Lord's providence, have shown all around the world that our enemies are many to this faith, and that the battle is at our doorstep. It is, as a good friend has recently reminded me, it's already here before us. I, you and I, are being called now, today, wherever we find ourselves, to contend for this faith against the ungodly who are within the church of Jesus Christ, who come in unknown to us, who seek to pervert the grace of God, into sensuality, and who are denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, and to contend for the faith against the world, which, of course, is our great enemy as well. This is, as we close, this is what I believe Jude is referring to and reminding us is the ordinary Christian life. There's nothing special in the book of Jude. There's nothing that sets it apart as something extraordinary with respect to what we're called to do and to be. This is the ordinary Christian life. He was incredibly wise in the way he wrote his letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember uh, the verses we've just read. Imagine if he had begun his letter with verse 3 and ended in verse 23. Without either of those two bookends that we talked about earlier, That letter would have been overwhelming and perhaps even discouraging to his readers. But as God often does, he bathes those harder verses on each end with the wonders of our salvation as we have them in verses 1 and 2 and verses 24 and 25. Facing our enemies, contending for the faith, can only happen, brothers and sisters, when we learn to rejoice in the great salvation that God has accomplished, 
a salvation which the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has accomplished for every true believer in Christ. And in those verses that bookend this whole book, we're told of the security and the peace that we have in him, the blessings which are abundant in him towards us, the security that when Jesus returns, we will be kept by God unto that day, and we will be safe. He will keep us from stumbling. You see, that's really the only way that we can face such enemies of the cross of Christ and contend for the faith. We have to understand our salvation. We have to understand what God did for us. We have to marvel in it, rejoice in it, believe it, trust it. There is coming a time, very soon perhaps, when we will be called individually and corporately to stand in the face of great persecution. You can almost feel it coming in our day. The question to you is, will you stand? Will you contend? Will you hold fast to what God has revealed? Or will you crumble and fall? The answer is directly related to where you stand on Jude's original intent, that he was eager to write about our common salvation. Do you know that salvation? Have you come to understand what God has done for you? Are you rejoicing in it daily so that you can be prepared to contend and stand against the enemies of the cross of Christ? In the early church, the followers of Jesus Christ, we know, were called to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Many times, many of them were called to give their very lives That we know is true of the original 11 disciples, minus Judas, of course, who betrayed Jesus. Now, this may seem a strange way to end such a serious book, but I want to end by quoting something, an illustration from the Babylon Bee. I think this may be the first time. I probably have used it before. You know what the Babylon Bee is, most of you. It's a website that seeks to use satire to pointedly address key issues in our world today from a Christian perspective. It's often very funny, very funny. It's one of the few things I laugh out loud, but also incredibly insightful. Maybe a good way as we conclude our study to look at this illustration. They're doing videos now, little videos, right? And they poke fun at an idea that was so common in the first century regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is next Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter for us. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But next Sunday on the calendar is Easter. And so we're going to remember particularly the resurrection of Christ, even as we remember on Friday his suffering and death. In this little short video, it's really quite insightful, quite humorous. It pictures the 11 disciples of Jesus Christ standing around a fire Jesus had died, and Peter is, of course, the one speaking. And he suggests to the other 11, listen, fellas, Jesus has died. We have to do something. And they all look to him and they say, well, what is it that we should do? Here's what we should do. We should go and steal the body of Jesus. Take it out of the tomb. Try to move that rock. Take it out of the tomb. Hide it. And then they'll believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. To which all the disciples cheer and hoot and say, that's a great idea, Peter. In the back, there's John. And John says, well, Peter, that's a great idea. But what happens after that? 
And Peter pauses and he says, well, we die, all of us. We suffer and die horrible deaths. And all the disciples are cheering. And John is scratching his head saying, I I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. And John says, where does the fame and the fortune come? Where does the overthrow of Rome come in? And Peter says, John, let me say it again. We steal the body. And then we die, all of us, horrible, horrible deaths. Every one of us, he goes through all the deaths of the disciples. And John says this, he says, listen, I would rather spend my life alone on an island, deserted island, than ever do something like that. And Peter comes up and he says to him, John, have I got good news for you? (laughs) You see, the whole point of that funny illustration is that there were many in the early church, many of the enemies of the cross of Christ, who believed that the disciples would do that. And it shows the folly of believing such a thing, that a hoax like that would be pulled off by the disciples, that they would contend earnestly for their faith, give their very lives to horrible deaths if Jesus had not really been raised from the grave. You see, they were able to do that because they first rejoiced in the salvation that Christ had accomplished for them. They lived and they died for his glory alone. And we are called, you and I, brothers and sisters, to walk in that path, even if the Lord calls unto death itself as we wait for him's coming in glory and in judgment on that great day. That faith is indeed worth defending. It's worth dying for if the Lord himself is pleased to call us to do so, because it's a faith worth rejoicing in, a faith that has enemies, a faith that we must contend for. Let us pray. Father, humor can be a tool that often catches us off guard. It reminds us of truths that are perhaps deeper than we first imagined. These disciples gave their lives and were willing to suffer, not because they pulled off a great hoax, but because they came to understand by the power of your spirit, a salvation which you accomplished for them. And therefore, in the midst of their enemies, which were many, they were willing to defend and contend for that faith. They were willing to give their very lives. May we in our day be willing to do the same should you call us to it. But until then, help us to faithfully contend for that faith, that faith once for all delivered unto the saints, that you might be glorified in our lives. And we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will ask the elders if you will come forward, please, and take your place here up front. Pastor Fisher mentioned that this, according to the calendar of the church, is where we celebrate the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem. And we know because the gospel writers tell us that early in his ministry, Jesus began to set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was doing that because he knew why he had come, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that Palm Sunday, as the people gathered and welcomed their king, 
coming on the foal of a donkey, according to the prophets, those very same people, many of them, would be using their voices to cry out for his crucifixion just hours, just days later, because Jesus was coming to die. They didn't think he should die. They thought he should overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom, but we know that Jesus came to die, and to die for you and I, and for all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this table, we're remembering those days of our Lord's earthly ministry as he gathered with his disciples, as he told them that he had to depart from them to leave, but he would not leave them orphans, as he told them that he himself, by his spirit, would be present with them always. That is why we come to this table. Jesus is present with us. We are present with him as we believe, as we teach that by the Holy Spirit, we are lifted up into his presence and we are seated, as it were, before the Lord Jesus Christ to receive